Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility. Now in this second series, we've been seeking out the people who are using these tools, people with the experience and depth of practice, to lead us to a future where humanity and the planet can flourish. And who else does this more than my guest today, Dr. Gail Bradbrook? Gail has a PhD in molecular biophysics. She was founder of a program called Street School Economics. She's a visionary, a social and spiritual activist. And of course, she's best known as one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion. I met Gail late last year when we both taught on a Spirit of Activism course at Embercombe in Devon. It was really genuinely extraordinary to be able to sit in ceremony and in circle with someone for whom I have so much respect. Gail seems to be one of those rare people who embodies the needs of our time. She understands energy and the flow of spirit, but she's also deeply embedded in the political realities of the times we live in. The gritty, grimy realities and the possibilities. Her integrity, her deep sense of humility, and above all, her capacity for absolutely shining intellectual thought is incredibly inspiring. We talked for a long time, in great depth. People of the podcast, please welcome Dr. Gail Bradbrook. So Gail Bradbrook, so much welcome to Accidental Gods. It's a privilege and an honour and a delight to be speaking to you. So how is lockdown for you, I'm thinking you're in Stroud, is that right? That's correct. And thank you, Manda. It's wonderful to be here. It really is an honour. Um, I'm enjoying lockdown. It feels odd to say that in the sense of knowing how much other people are struggling with it and that people are dying and dying unnecessarily. But from my own personal perspective, I'm very much enjoying it, to be honest. Yeah. I, you know, I haven't spoken to anybody yet who isn't, but then we live in small market towns or the rural communities that border small market towns. We're not on the 10th floor of you know a high rise with an abusive partner and six children. So Exactly. So given that, and given that we are in lockdown and that we all understand the horror and the pain and the unnecessary death. It still seems to many of us, and I spoke to Rupert Reed right at the beginning of this season, before lockdown in fact, that this is a moment of potential, a turning point where if we choose to, we could walk away from the way that the entire system has been, the economics, the social structures, what we used to call the social agreements. Mm. So what I'd like to do as a as a springboard for the potential of this moment is to very briefly look back at Extinction Rebellion and particularly at the last year. And it seems to me that you shifted what we might call the Overton window of climate awareness a long, long way towards the the green end, the aware end, as opposed to the red unaware end. And that for whatever Extinction Rebellion does in the future, that was an astonishing feat. And I wondered if you could synthesize for us how you saw that from the inside as a systemic process. 
Yeah. Um, well, obviously, first to say that we weren't the only people taking action. Uh, you have the Sunrise Movement in the States. Um, you have the work of Greta Thunberg and Fridays for Future. There were significant reports out from the IPCC and specific scientific papers being reported on. Mark Carney made an intervention, David, uh, to David Attenborough's film. So it was in a, yeah. in a context. Um, so, you know, wanting to keep the sort of humility <laughs> around yeah. our intervention. And uh, you can see graphs where you can see the April rebellion and the spike from YouGov, as in a spike of people saying climate really matters. There was a big shift. So I, I suppose we were working with a few different aspects. One is uh, sacrifice and disruption. The, the twin um, paths, if you like, of civil disobedience that are both the willing to disrupt normal life and yeah. what that means. Uh, and it's common for people to say, please don't be disruptive, just do a protest. Why don't you just do a protest? Yeah. And the obvious answer is it doesn't work. I'm yeah. sorry. And people are doing that and it's not being listened to. But it's also the sacrifice. You know, it's watching 90 year old women being carried off by police officers mm. from Waterloo Bridge. It says something to the world. It's watching doctors for XR and lawyers for XR and writers for XR and, and others, you know, coming together and saying this, something has to change. Then the other big piece was the welcoming of feeling and emotion that so many of us have watched this thing in horror, in numbness, in mm. despair, and to name all of those things and the grief that needs to be felt and the despair that needs to be felt, you know, you know it's a process. It's not an intellectual exercise as much as, of course, there is science to understand. Mm. And then there was the piece around mass mobilisation. There's techniques, they've been worked out, we use them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was a, an incredible feeling to go from, I mean, I'm sitting in the room now where we decided we'd try and start a rebellion and several of us, many of us had been working on that path for some time, but to go from that decision and to say the first thing we want to do is shift that, that over to window, as they call it, and to watch that happen was yeah. did feel quite miraculous. I didn't get to the April Rebellion. I watched it with awe and joy. Having joined up, I think pretty much at the moment when XR arrived on my screen back in the previous October, I was enthused and thought it looked really interesting. And then April happened seemingly to me out of the blue because my attention was elsewhere. And I had friends who were there and they came back absolutely glowing. And it felt like it was an outpouring of love and relief that mm -hmm. things were happening. We started up a group in our tiny little market town and 70 people turned up. We had to find a different room because there were so many people who were so grateful that there was something that they felt they could do. Having exactly as you spe said, spent years writing letters to their MPs or going on marches and achieving absolutely nothing except becoming more frustrated, more upset, more locked into sympathetic structures. I'm, I'm still remembering my conversation with Sarah about polyvagal theory. And then October came around and our tiny little town sent, I think there were 33 of us or so, and there were a couple of hundred in the background supporting, and I'm guessing that was replicated all around the world. Mm. And I think it felt different than I was expecting, and the people who had been to both said it felt different, and it felt much more like we were entering a slightly surreal war zone. And I'm wondering if you felt a difference or whether really deep in the inside, 
it felt the same? No, I was absolutely different. So um, firstly, April felt like a real honeymoon period and the sun was shining and we got away with so much. It was Hmm. just an incredible feeling to watch, you know, the pink boat arrive in Oxford Circus, to see kitchens set up in marble arch in the middle of the road, um, people sitting around making music, the Red Rebels making their appearance and just... um, the creativity, the coming together, the sense of community. It was, um, I mean, I think particularly Waterloo Bridge, but not just, you know, each each site had its own flavour, mm. but a sense of the future of our longings in many yeah. ways, right? I mean, it wasn't just, and there's always difficulties and so on, but yeah, April was incredible and social movements are attacked. Yes. You know, that's the point. Like, they're a threat. So, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they attack you, then you win. And then they say it was their ID, idea all along, maybe. But October was different. It was raining, it, we mm. were heading into the winter. Uh, there'd been conflicts within XR following the successors, you know, all, yeah. all to be expected. Politics aren't a bad thing, but, you know, people's feelings and pressures and all sorts. So it, it was a different time. And obviously the p- police response was very different. It was about making sure that we didn't have our equipment. And that was especially an outrage with regards to, you know, one of the duties of the police is to uphold the right to protest and they made it Mm. especially difficult for our disabled rebels yeah you know taking away disabled toilets and so on and i felt with the water all around us there was something about a need to find a resilience Hmm. a need to deepen yeah it was harder on us you know there's this I mean, this is one way of looking at it. There's many ways of looking at it. You know, I think we need to know that something's possible, and that was April. Yes. And then it's kind of, for me, there's been this question that's been asked, which goes, are you are you really ready for the change? In fact, mm. I worked with the grandmother Ayahuasca before the March Rebellion, and it was a really, really, really hard journey. I mean, incredible. And, and I, I was repeatedly asked the question, have you had enough yet? Oh, my goodness. It was about this right. industrial um, society in its current format. And it wasn't a question to me. It was a question to humanity. <laughs> my body was writhing. I was, you know, vomiting. I was all over the place, if anybody's yep. ever worked with the grandmother in that way, when she's <laughs> giving you a real pasting and didn't feel like me. It was in, but have you had enough yet? Have you had enough yet? And then, so October felt like, I and mean, again, I, I'm only speaking from my own feeling of it, right? But was re, we have to find our resilience. And the autumn was tough, you know, and yeah. we, and, and not long after that October rebellion, you had the election launched and, mm. um, attempting in some ways to be a rebellion that's also meeting an electoral process was tricky. We had people on hunger strike. I don't feel like they got the coverage that was really uh, appropriate. Um, But then neither did the October rebellion. Well, actually, it had five times the coverage of the April rebellion. Oh, did it? Because from the inside, you know, I I was part of the group that sat outside the BBC while they studiously ignored that it was happening. And I was, I'm not a great fan of the BBC at the best of times, but my goodness, I was cross. And then I remember the the death march on the Saturday, at the middle Saturday, which was so creative. I was completely blown away by the 
astonishing creativity and the amount of work that people had poured into that. And it got, you know, I don't know, 30,000 people, almost no coverage. The weekend after was the, the idiot Brexit march, where all the way along I was thinking, sit down, guys, just sit down. You've had a model, just sit down. And no, they had to march. And they, all of the media were covering every pace of that utterly pointless expression of futility. Um, and it seemed that the contrast between that was was huge. But if you say it's five times, I'm sure it's been measured. So, Well, I mean, but bear in mind, quite a lot of the coverage came after the Canning Tube incident when there was mm. uh, violence and aggression be- uh, between protesters and um, the ordinary folks in the tube. I mean, that was part of it. Right. And that kind of shows you the difficulties within a movement. So we work with something we call pressure building actions. It's the idea that you have to sort of escalate uh, the impacts of what you're doing and how to do that in a way that meets a need to hold a vision that change is possible. So I there was a moment when I think I was supposed to go on the show that Philip Schofield does, I forgot what it's called, but anyway, with James Brown, that incredible Paralympian who climbed on top of an aeroplane yes. despite being yes. afraid Brian. of heights, right? <laughs> yes. And um I mean what I, I partly I ended up in jail, you know, in the cells for a day because I'd broken a window at the Department for Transport, but they also kept bumping us. And Sarah mm. Lunnan ended up on on that conversation after the Canning Tube incident. They were like, How dare you? you this outrageous why would you do this and she said look you keep bumping us now you've got us on I mean Mm. I had a message from um, David Shuckman from the BBC saying you know we want a dialogue we want a conversation so you know it's really really tricky Mm. The, the, the media soon gets fatigued they, they want the new story. They're following the political narrative. And, yeah. well, I will say obviously, but from my perspective, the way to uh, keep the publicity up is, is to be disruptive, but it's it's to do it in a way that makes sense and does hold a vision. And it's not easy to figure that out. Yeah. And, and I do personally feel like Canning Tube was a mistake, but I understood the people that did it, why they did it, uh, and what their intentions were. So. Yeah. And it seems to me that that's also part of having a decision-making process that I witnessed happening where people could come together and create decisions that were non-hierarchical. And one of the most astonishing things for me of being on Trafalgar Square for that first week was the way a number of thousand people in total uncertainty can nonetheless create fluid and flowing decision-making nexuses. I'm not sure that's a word. Nexi? Anyway, plurals of nexus. Um, that work. It, when everybody came from broadly the same place with broadly the same ideals and broadly the same aims, there was an ability to achieve consensus because everybody was wanting a similar outcome. And I was so appreciative that that was being modelled, that we could see that that could happen. And it seems to me that part of a big part of what XR has been doing is modelling alternative ways of being and that this must have come from the DNA that was built into it right at the start. Yeah. I often say that I think how we rebel is as important, if not more important, than the rebellion itself. Because, I mean, perhaps speaking to morphic residents or something, we are trying to be the change that we need to see in the world. And there's something about practising 
our own power and our own togetherness and our own agency that's really important through things like people's assemblies they can be super super powerful experiences yeah. and I often feel like it's there's there's not a great deal of point I mean I, I don't mind it happening it, it's important people have de- debates and discussions but debating you know how the world ought to be or should be or whatever it's like how are we what are we actually capable of you know what are we made of right now mm. what can we bring forwards right. what can we do but there's a couple of other things to say from what you said I mean firstly this word gets used non-hierarchical it's not correct to say that XR is non-hierarchical okay there are two ways that are generally thought about in the world around decision making one is the sort of top down very specific hierarchy uh, and the and the and the the good thing about that is that somebody gets to decide and the bad thing about it is that they just won't have all the information to hand you know one or two or small senior management team just and, and they might be exactly. Boris Johnson, in which case the decisions are going to be functionally crazy. <laughs> and then there's consensus decision making, which is quite often of the progressive left. And it's the idea of everybody having a say and trying to reach consensus. The, the, the problems that you could have in and that's great that it's inclusive and so on. It maybe makes more space for the hive mind. But one of the problems with that is, A, it can be very slow. Right. B, it can water down a good decision to a more kind of liberal perspective and XR needs to keep its radical edge and see it can not actually uh, make the distinction between people who've done the deeper thinking about a situation or have expertise in it. Mm. So what XR attempts to do is organise in what's called a decentralised way. And I spoke to one of the experts in the world on that recently who's you may have heard of Frederick Lalu. We're having a Zoom call later on today, yes. And he was saying, you know, we're sort of leading edge in terms of trying to think about decentralised organising. We don't, there's so much about that that we, we're struggling with because it's not kind of, uh, it's not like an organisation of scale X, you know, what you have is a network yeah. that's gone both global and local. So um, how you organise in that way is really, really tricky. And then you had something else you wanted to say? Well, so I also have a story about um, people's assemblies as well, which relates to the pink boat, if you'd like to hear that. But there's lots of ways, oh, love- lots of routes we can go on this, which I just thought might be interesting for your listeners. So there was a particular situation that happened in April. I, I do have my child in the room, by the way. It's locked down and, and I'm a so there may be no some worries. noise around. Um, just, yeah, hoping people can cope with that. Yeah, there was a situation in April when, I mean, the pink boat was just this incredible thing, actually. I mean, to be honest, I didn't know the pink boat was going to happen. I was so focused on getting, at, my, at that stage, I was um, in charge of the finances in the UK. And my focus was absolutely on getting the right money wow. to people. And you often get money after you've started rebellion where you need it in advance you know I'm talking about rebellion as on the street so this pink boat arrived and I was like my goodness we've put a vagina in the middle of Oxford Circus I can't believe it. it's brilliant I love it and it had a real brilliant energy I don't know if listeners went but people were putting soil on the ground in Oxford Circus and people were dancing and it was ecstatic at times it really was magical I have magical stories to tell about that and I'm 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 reining myself in because I can go off on many tangents. No, don't rein yourself in. Our podcast is about okay, magic. Okay, well, let magic. me tell you. So one bit of magic, right, was that 
I, you know, I, I had a sort of relatively free-floating role in the April Rebellion. Um, I was on a particular decision-making group and I was doing quite a lot of the media. So other people were very attached to specific sites because they were holding that space and so on. So anyway, I had the glory of walking around in the sunshine and just watching this thing unfold. It was one of the best times of my life, if not the best, you know. So um, I got to the pink boat one time. And um, I'd just actually been on Good Morning Britain and it's the first time I've done live TV and I can tell you, it terrifies me. I do a lot of praying beforehand to be grounded in the earth, mm. to reach my branches to the sky, you know, all this stuff. And also just like generally going, fucking hell, help. You know? <laughs> let me, let me, <laughs> let, me let me get this right, you know. And on that Good Morning Britain interview, you can see there was a guy who was a former police officer and I'd asked him in the green room if it was okay to to touch him that I can get quite tactile and he said yeah so it was kind of a cute interview really and um it was sort of it was sort of daft because um the guy who interviewed me called Sir David Attenborough something like a mere he's only a broadcaster you know he just looked really <laughs> thought anyway it's all like kind of and I was relieved that it went okay and then I'm, I'm, I'm coming back into the rebellion and thinking, okay, I can relax. And I get a phone call to say, would you be on uh, the Today programme with Nick Robinson? Which I don't, I don't think I can give you the sense of terror <laughs> that gives me. Do you know what I mean? I mean, really, honestly, the sense of terror. Anyway, I, uh, but, but also the willing. I'm here in service. If that's what's necessary, if I'm the right person, I will do it, of course. Right. So anyway, I walked to the pink boat and um, I bumped into somebody accidentally, obviously, <laughs> who I happened to mm. have been in ceremony with. I won't say his name. I think he's quite open, but I won't say his name. Who, who's really of of the light landed gentry establishment type of person? But does ceremonies exactly uh, spiritual absolutely. ceremonies? We need to be clear for yeah, the listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Deep, deep uh, medicine based ceremonies wow. is a rainforest defender, and um, yeah, his. Everyone's going to be super curious about this person because uh, I just I, I just want to pr respect people's privacies. Obviously, sure. you know. So, so I have been in ceremony with people from the Bullingdon Club. You know, it's it's kind of um, hmm. the, 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 of course these connections between us. Anyway, get to the pink boat and he's there and he goes, "How are you doing, Gail?" And I goes, "Well." I'm great. I've just done this interview. I think it went well, but I'm shitting myself. I'm, I've got to do the Today programme. He said, well, don't worry. I know John Humphreys. I'll put in a good word for you. Uh, and and um, any, anyway, and then just immediately after that, Diara from the uh, Tucano, I probably said that incorrectly, tribe in the Amazon, spoke from the Pink Boats. Absolutely incredible. Yes. And about, you know, if you're here in these times, you're here for a reason. Uh, it was beautiful. I referred to it in the in the Extinction Rebellion book. Uh, it was a very moving piece. Mm. I mean, just the magic, right? So anyway, then I have to find myself in the Today programme. And there I am again, yet again, you know, praying beforehand, please have this go well. And again, you can see bits of that interview. And I just, I didn't intend to be, but I cheekily rebutted mm. Nick Robinson. Uh, but what was interesting, I walked into that studio I walked well, into that on. studio, crapping myself, and I said, please be nice to me. I didn't go to Eton. <laughs> and the point I'm trying to make is, I, I just, you know, I'm an ordinary working class woman. My dad was a coal miner. I haven't been trained in those kind of slightly bully, slightly edge of bullying yeah. 
you know, interviews where you fit. It's not the edge of bullying, exactly. it is power play. So then Nick Robinson's in the studio, but also John Humphreys. John Humphreys says, oh, my friend phoned up and said, be nice to be nice to her. <laughs> and, and then Nick Robinson says, well, I'm never nice to anybody. So it was all this whole, and then we start the interview. What happened in the interview was that Nick Robinson, and he's doing his job, right? His job, in in that context, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but in that context, just to give me a hard time, his body language was, he kept giving me the perfect sign, the thumbs up, encouraging me. So he comes across Ah, like, and even if you see him, like he's given me this horrible time and it would have put my, you know, talking about the vagus nerves and all that, would have put my body into absolute rigid fear. However, his body language was encouraging. Oh, how interesting. And I think all good to him, I don't know what his personal perspective is, but it's the way to get something out of a person. Ask them challenging questions, but put their body at ease. Anyway, the interview, you know, as well as it could, obviously you look at it and think things could be better. The interview went quite well, I think. And the editor said, oh, well done. I think you did a good job. Uh, My daughter's on the streets with you and I gave her a badge. (laughs) And um, yes. I don't want you yes. to make this, um, the Today programme really corrupt and behind XR because they've definitely given us a, a hard time, right? But I, I suddenly thought, God, I'm in the old boys' network at last, you know? <laughs> but what magic, what magic of yes. support, you know? And I'm, I'm not saying, again, that was given yes. an easy time. But anyway, that wasn't the pink boat story. There's another pink boat story, which um, if you want me to carry on, Manda, because it, it, it is, it is in the sort really of magical yes. realms or, you know, this is not, not everybody in XR sees things in these ways, but the sense of support, right? So we had this situation whereby the pink bow has been there for several days and had already become iconic. You know, it's it, it, I think it's in the... That particular boat is still impounded with the police, but there's boats in museums and deals with museums. You know, there's all sorts around the boat thing. The boat had been taken by the police finally you know they got the lock on people off it'd been surrounded mm, um mm. and I was back in the office and we were getting phone calls saying you've got to come and help with with the pink boat it goes back to the conversation about hierarchies right mm. I was saying well look you know this is this is not just to finish that point on hierarchy the point is that people get to be in charge you know so somebody was in charge of the pink boat mm. situation a small group they're the decision makers not everybody those and they may take feedback and advice from other people right so they're the decision makers not me not anybody else yeah. so they're phoning those up please come and help I'm like well it's up to the guys on the ground you know it's uh and then the phone call would come in again and say it's getting really hairy please come and in the end we got the message okay we're coming and it really is potentially it's seen from a film this right so they said somebody known to the <laughs> movement needs to come Roger and I leapt on our bikes, pedalled down there. Before we went, I'd looked around to try and find a loud hailer because I understood there was a f- couple of hundred people there to, to, you know, to be able to speak and so on. No, all the batteries were flat. And I found this kind of like green horn, <laughs> this, this green plastic horn. It was a bit ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. A you're getting horn. it right. Yeah. You know something of um, which I would keep private. Some of the guidance that I feel sometimes. Uh, anyway, I stick that in my money belt or whatever it is and, and get on the bike and we get there. And indeed, it was hairy. It was the atmosphere was shifted. And I'm thinking, goodness me, this could be the end of things if this turns violent. You know, um, one guy had tried mm. to leap on the boat. He'd had his head shoved to the ground and a police officer had his knee on his head. 
there was two to three hundred of our rebels there. The energy was starting to feel a little bit more mob-like. Somebody had glued themselves in front of the boat. It was feeling like this desperate hanging on to the boat thing. And um, there was about, I would say about 1,200 police there because they would have at least three for every rebel. It was potentially going to be a meltdown situation. And the police don't want that in general, I would say. You know, that they don't want that. Mm. And um, I got there with Rod, Roger. And Roger said to me, Gail, I'll handle the police. You handle the folks. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know. And I was stood in front of this group and I had two really strong thoughts. One was this is an absolutely significant moment, how this goes going to matter to the rest of the rebellion. And Hmm. it's entirely down to me to sort it out. And I don't know what to do. You know, I just had this, and Roger's gone off and I was stood there. And I took this green horn and I blew it three times and got everybody to sit down. And I just felt, man, like a download, like something come in support. And it was, well, it's not me, though. That's the thing. It's not us, is it? You know what I mean? I know, I know. But you've done the work that allows that to happen. I think that's a really important thing. I, I don't mean to interrupt your story, but you have done enough personal work that when whatever it is that creates the downloads needs to download, you are there to take it. And that's that's huge, actually. And I just would like those listening really to know that, first of all, it's it's possible everybody can get there, but you do have to have done the work. And you've done it. I think for me, with a practice, it's a prayerful invitation to be a vessel it, it, I think that my hesitance, Manda, is mm. there's there's such a pull around celebrity and there's a pull around, um, yes. you know, messianic <laughs> kind of nonsense. Uh, sure. And yes, particularly when we're dealing with sacrifice, you know, self-sacrifice, yeah. the whole yeah. of our culture is attuned to that. And you're right. It's a, a big gap that we don't want to fall into and the, and the, and the wounds around wanting to be loved you know these are things that yeah, there is a path to be trodden yeah. here i yeah. i take care where i where i can see you know yeah. you can't always see so anyway yeah this download and and essentially what we I, I did was to say to people well let's talk about how we're feeling and we ran a people's assembly spontaneously and what occurred to me was that we were hanging onto the boat in a way that had become it become a symbol and that part of our maturity was mm. uh, as a movement was to know when to let things go and that that's what we have to learn how mm. to do but we uh, it went on for about an hour and a half the people's assembly deciding whether to let the boat go and honouring the people that didn't want to let it go, but the majority did, and creating a a beautiful way to let it go. So my colleague, um, April, said, let's sing this song. And um, somebody said, well, is that cultural appropriation? She said, no, it's a a mourning song from the Isle of Skye. And she's a Scottish, Scottish heritage. Right. Beautiful. And so eventually we make this agreement and we, we, we serenade the boat and we walk it to somewhere with the police's, you know, agreement and we let it go. Uh, and it was incredible. And, and right. as it left, there was then 1,200 police that came through uh, afterwards. It was like some like mad carnival. And uh, somebody had already said to me, uh, leaned in and whispered to me, Gail, there are more boats. <laughs> you know, which is the point, you know, this is just this boat. You know, this is the whole point, right? And then, and then it yeah. dispersed. Yeah. I, I immediately got a phone call saying, we've retaken Oxford Circus. And we've all got these signs saying, oh, we are oh the goodness. boat. 
we are the boat. You know, I was just, wow. And this is the thing is that if we can believe in and feel our togetherness, we have such power. We have such power. And it's so fragile, Amanda. Yes. You know, it's so fragile, that togetherness. And, um, you know, I... I work with XR still and I wondered how this podcast would go because so much of what I do is just dealing with, you know, tensions and conflicts and upsets and misinformation and, Mm. ah, you know, humanity. It's both its most beautiful and its worst at times, you know. Yeah. So, so much stuff coming up. Partly that story makes makes me weep. And I, I watched it happen. You know, that bits of that were live on Facebook and the extraordinary visual effects of the pink boat and the police in all their yellow jackets. And then I'm thinking, so there are places I want to go shortly, but just what arises for me, I often end up thinking about how this impacts the police, partly because I have close friends who have children in the police. I have a particularly close friend who has two children, one in the Met and one in the city police. And so I hear their view from the inside. And these are people who are very committed to a different world. And and then they have to manage that existence. And I'm thinking 1,200 police stood and watched a people's assembly happen, and they cannot not have been touched by the energy of that. And I remember watching in Trafalgar Square, sorry, a, a young man, a young policeman in tears because he was having to arrest someone. And in the end, he, he had to turn away and let his older colleagues do it because he he couldn't arrest this young girl. It just He just didn't have it. And then, and it has always seemed to me that the point when the police sit down and join us is the point when a very big threshold has been crossed. And I saw something came around on Facebook yesterday that the Bulgarian police had sat down with protesters. And I don't even know what they were protesting. But it happened in Thailand. It happened in Paris in the student revolts at the point when the police go, you know what, you're right, and sit down with us. Then the world changes overnight. So I wondered if you, there's obviously limits to what you can say, but whether you had any sense that amongst the police there was, there are clearly the ones who want to fight. There are clearly the ones who are, would support whatever they were told to do, but there have to be others for whom there are limits. Yeah, it's a big topic, the police and the relationship between the environmental movement and the police, actually. At the end of that story, actually, the bit I forgot to say is that as the 1,200 police went through in their various vans and some on foot, the crowd was spontaneously chanting, police, we love you, it's for your children too. Mm. And um, yes, I... On the one hand, love that chant uh, in in the sense of in its intention to say we're all together, we're all human beings, and it's a very problematic chant which you can speak to in a minute. But there are police officers, former police officers, who speak on behalf of Extinction Rebellion, and that's very powerful in and of itself. We've got some. I think Rob Stevens is one of them. We've got some great spokespeople. Mm-hmm. I have a, a friend who's quite high up in the legal system who speaks to senior people in the police profession and they'd said that normally what happens because you know to police the October rebellion they had to bring a lot of um, people in from outside I remember one guy saying I'm a carrot muncher from Devon this one police officer Uh, and it's the point at which they're having you know that that is where you can overwhelm the state when and that is part of the intention right Um, when they're having to bring people in now what I can share anecdotally at least was that police didn't want to go they didn't want to you know you've you've got and I've had this from bankers as well they're sitting at home around the dinner table with their children going, what are you doing, dad or mom? You know, Uh, 
like this is they're on the right side and they didn't want to go and yeah. lots of them wouldn't go right. and they had to do it yes. through compulsion not not yes. normally people would be up for the overtime and all the rest of it they didn't want to go so um but in terms of that chant and the wider thing with the right. police you know i mean there was a really brilliant podcast last night so it's uh, the 15th of may when we're recording this so i it should be on extinction rebellions youtube channel with ian i'll, I'll find it and put a link in the show yeah notes. thank you with um ian hanny lopez who's a an academic from the states and with dr adam i've forgotten his second name but uh, i think two mixed race guys talking about racial politics and the environmental movement with with roger and you know the the absolute fact of the matter is is that there is and has been institutional racism in the police and when uh some people of color uh, some racially marginalised people watch a bunch of white folks going having a bit of a mm. loving with the police. It's sore. It's like yeah. I, this yeah. is my understanding. Right? I'm not speaking on anybody's behalf, but it's like, do you not see what they do to us? You know, do you not care? And it's almost like I tried to redesign that chant, which went something like, "When you stand for injustice, we can't stand with you. Still, we love you, and we do this for your children." You know, there's a place right. where that piece needs to be said. I don't know if that would still work for anybody to hear a chant said in that way, but it's somehow saying we we know what else happens here. Yes, and Tom Crompton, all of the work of the Common Cause Foundation of intrinsic and extrinsic value systems, and if you speak to people's intrinsic value systems, they rise, and the extrinsic values that stimulate them fall. And I think, which is exactly what Ian is saying, and that's got to be because in the end we are humanity and we have to find our common humanity and so okay so what's arising a lot is things like and I'm not sure I want to go here but I just want to say it because it's forefront of my head is Boris Johnson's father spoke in October Mm. and you talked about children's impact on their parents and it seems to me I am working at the moment on a television script with a number of people because again if we can't create the roadmap of where we're going to then we can't get there and part of what we're building in is the understanding that the younger generations or that different generations okay yes now I do want to go here right so what would be really interesting you said you've spoken to been in ceremony with people from the Bullingdon Club the sense of there being a hierarchy that is deliberately aiming towards the maximal increase of the neoliberal model, which is an extractive destructionist model. Mm. You put it very nicely. I can't remember. Patriarchal wounds of separation and... Scarcity, separation and powerlessness is the wound underneath it all, but yeah. Brilliant. And it seems to me that there are people who wish there to be scarcity, separation and powerlessness because for them, they are gaining power. And I can get quite paranoid about the sense that there is collusion amongst that very thin layer of our current structural hierarchy. And yet, Boris Johnson's father spoke in Trafalgar Square in October. I'm not sure he was received particularly well because his answer was, let the market be more free and it will sort everything. But he was still there. He had an XR badge on. It would have been hard to declare us all terrorists while he was doing that. Mm. And you have spoken very movingly on occasion about, and, and just now, about the children of bankers. They go home and their kids are going, Dad, you're destroying the planet. And so it seems to me that the 
generations either side of the kind of generally men, generally white, not exclusively, mm. but the ones who have had the empathy beaten out of them quite young and whose presumably internal terrors leave them seeking to create the scarcity, separation and powerlessness in everybody else, mm. that they are amenable to conversation from either end of the generational spread. And that therefore, it feels to me like there's a kind of a Berlin Wall moment that we may be heading to and that the coronavirus may be bringing us to, where we all thought it was going to be there for the rest of our lives. Mm. And yet when it began to crumble metaphorically and really, it went down incredibly fast. Yeah. And that this layer of, let's call it the Bullingdon tendency, is thin and fragile and that there must be ways. I'm, I'm having a vision of this white wall with, with green vines and hawthorn trees and brambles just weaving through it until it's not there mm. quite fast. Mm. Yeah. Is that a sense? Does that feel like something? Because you're talking to these people. Does that feel possible? I mean, there's a very beautiful Boris story that I'll, I'll, I'll tell as well if you want, which is truly, truly, yes. truly magical. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to answer your directly your question, that I guess this thing could go really quickly. I used to work with Harvey Jackins, who started Revaluation Co-Counseling, and one way he said it was it's like a wooden block that's been nibbled away, uh, this, this, this right. block that's an unhelpful block, and it's been nibbled away by um, woodworm, but it still looks intact. But it's one moment you right. can tap it and it's going to turn to dust you know it's done with I did once have a bit of a download in a in a ceremony about that power play peace and the the way it seemed and it it was around um, George the guy who used to be our chancellor I'm having a bit of a name block today Osborne George Osborne thank you it was around him and I just kept seeing this little boy this little boy in absolute despair you know and you think about what we do to our Mm. upper classes with the public school so-called public school so absolute despair that you literally take them away age seven from their families and put them in this bullying environment and what I and what I got from this download is that you know despair and I've experienced it in 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 its depth twice it's it's hard place to be Mm. is it's like a vacuum it needs something to fill it and what happened in both times for me thank goodness was that love came back in because you're very present with despair it's it's like it's not like a a kind of vague numbness a sort of vague depression it's like you're here and it's horrendous you know you're present but there's no love that's my definition of despair right and I could feel that power feeling powerful would would be a replacement that you could live with when love's not there and that's what I think might happen to right. some of our upper class people. And we need to get them back and, and help them to heal. You know, that's part of the journey, isn't it? But so, mm-hmm. so there were these wonderful XR folks um, led by Tori Lou that were walking the Mary Michael lines. And I've forgotten, but it was on one of the, you know, equinox solstices. And um, they wanted to bring love to power was their intention. And their story was that they were delayed many times on their journey and they were two hours late to get into checkers and they were delayed by, you know, the toddlers that needed feeding or the mum that had to sit and breastfeed or some other bit of chaos. So they got there much later. One of them, or a couple of them walked into the farm shop and Boris was there, right? And they'd been singing this song, Listen to Your Heart, Let Love Lead the Way. 
And so they just spontaneously sang to him, huh. listen to your heart, let love lead the way. And, <laughs> and he, he fell into silence. He put his hand on his heart. And at some point started to become quite emotional, started to get, I don't know if he, I, I think I've exaggerated the story in the past that he cried, but I think he, his eyes watered. And then he was heard saying to his girlfriend, who are these people? It's like they just emerged from the earth. Listen to your heart, let love lead the way. Yes. That's what he said. He, he repeat, And of course, then yes. he's gone on to do yes. horrendous things and, 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 you know, on the one hand, talk, uh, pose in front of David Attenborough about restoring nature and then next minute give HS2 the go ahead and smash him through our woodlands. I mean, I'm not celebrating the guy, but that possibility of redemption, you know, that there's still a person there. Yes. And, uh, yeah. And that we could set the intent to reach them. I, I interviewed Daniel Thorson, who lives at the Monastic Academy mm. for the Preservation of life on earth, which is a Buddhist monastery in Vermont. And their stated intent that they really are working on on energetic and spiritual levels is to bring wisdom to those with power and power to those with wisdom. Beautiful. Which, you know, if we could yeah. all work towards yeah. that, one would imagine the world would be transformed. I interrupted no, you. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And I think Daniel was one of the uh, core people in the Occupy movement, if I remember rightly. And he, he gave was. me some really good advice at yes. the start, which was to be, you know, with with the power that a social movement gives you, which is to, to take care with it, you know, to because uh, you yeah. Occupy wanted to share their power really quickly and sort of handed it over and it collapsed really quickly. But it's also... You know, so it's this power with peace that you're wanting to bring forwards, but doing it with care and attention. Anyway, I, it was a useful piece of advice, but um, that's slightly tangential. But going right. back to your point about the crumbling wall, I'm reading the story of B at the minute. I, I didn't massively enjoy it, actually. It feels like it's um, quite long-winded for me, but others may enjoy it. But it, 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 I'm certainly finding it of value. And it's essentially a philosophy book, but it's talking about the new, the new old story, as Charles Eisenstein would call it. And, you know, talk, talking about totalitarian agriculture when it emerged and what it's done to us in terms of driving unsustainable ways of living and um, yeah yeah strip mining the land and destroying all the life but what happens when you have dense populations together when they hit famine then they get into these wounds you know it's a, and, the, and the wars that arise out of that all right. of that so but that's that story is one obviously that is about domination about extractivism that we can take 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 and that our role here is to to dominate nature and how that talks about then dominating the feminine etc i'm sure people know this but it's it's then the new old story as one beautiful guy victor puts it is that we're a body in the body of life uh, that its life is sacred and that we are in this relationship and then it you know it speaks then to the what what vision do you hold with all that we know because that is obviously indigenous wisdom yeah and so that you know it's not like humanity stopped it's just that our culture stopped having that wisdom and that's that wisdom still exists and then if we can connect reconnect with that wisdom it changes where we're heading so i don't want to take up a huge amount more of your time. But one of the things we haven't discussed, really, and I know it's one of the things that you're very good at discussing, is economics. I did the Master's in Sustainable Economics at Schumacher. And as part of it, I wanted to write a term paper on 
what would shamanic economics look like? And I got to the very end of nearly having to write up and I was doing the work, the ceremonial work, and I was told, you're asking the wrong question, which was a bit distressing given <laughs> that I had two days to hand in. Um, and and the question I should have been asking is, what are we here for? Mm. Because you cannot design an economic system until you know what it's doing. And part of the problem is we've defaulted to an economic system that is empowering the people who hold the reins of power. And and you know, it what it does very, very well is to shovel mm. value uphill to the few from the many. And if we're going to live a different way on the other side of this pandemic, we need to find new reasons why our economy might flourish. And I wondered, you've thought a lot about this. You used to hold the barefoot economic kind of forums and talk to people. How, if you were to restructure our economy, what would it be for and where would it be heading? Do those questions make sense? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think you're right. It's it's founded in that question of what are we actually here for? Um, by the way, the work I've done in the past was called Street School Economics, just to honour whoever did barefoot economics. Um, Sorry. So Sorry. I think a simple way of saying it is if an economy is to maximise well-being and minimise harm, it's going to be a, a much better signpost for us. I think the deeper piece is around purpose and that's why Frederick Laloux's work on reinventing organizations so exciting to me that you can see the emergence of businesses that are really in purpose not just talking about it to sort of pose and greenwash and all the rest of it um so in his work there's a uh an organization called Birdsock who are so in their purpose, which and which is around independent living for older people, that they get 80% of the market share because they're brilliant at what they do. Mm. The chief exec goes to their competitors and says, I'll teach you how to be like us so you can get more market share for free, you know, because they're so behind their purpose. Yeah. Mm. And, and I think that, to me, the deeper piece here feels like our, the dance of consciousness on earth you know on this beautiful place and for us to have had this journey of separation which came from eating from the fruit of knowledge you know we got to know things we got to Hmm. separate I mean Charles Eisenstein is a brilliant writer I'm sure listeners know him in terms of both talking about that journey of separation through his incredible piece of work um, the ascent of humanity and then he does talk about sacred economics an economic system that would be in service to life and I think there's just something about that way we can dance with nature that agroecology is talking about. And I know that you're, I think I heard you saying you were reading about regenerative agriculture at the minute. I've just read um, Isabella Tree's book yeah. about Nep Farm and, God, you know, I had shed many tears right. reading that book about how much yeah. nature can heal and really you know i you know i have a background in science the first rule as i understand it of science is to observe you know this is a rule of permaculture isn't it yeah. it's not to get in there and try and do something it's to observe to watch to watch to watch and minimum interventions you know is like well maybe if we do a little thing here what happens observe you know maybe if we bring longhorn cattle mm. back on the land what yeah. would that do so yeah. it's a beautiful story Yes. And then, so I'm just thinking, I'm wondering, can we rewild 
our economy, because one of the things that we always talked about at college back in 2017, which feels like an aeon ago, was how do we create the soft landing? This idea that the fossil fuel economy, the extractive economy was a Boeing 747 in full flight across the Atlantic, and somehow you have to get it to land in a way that isn't just falling out of the sky. Because falling out of the sky is going to render very large numbers of people destitute. And and you can't do that. You don't want to, and you mustn't. And yet, well, exactly. coronavirus, yeah. you know, that Boeing 747 is, is landing, yeah. if not and that, landed. It's magic, isn't it? And yeah. so how yeah. do we go forward? It is a, 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 such a, I hate to say this, but it feels as if we are being offered an opportunity. It was. It is serious enough that we are taking it very seriously. Everything else that was serious, we have largely ignored. We are having to take this seriously. And so are you speaking to anybody who is actively producing roadmaps of how we can go forward from here in a way that isn't back to business as usual? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we did a, an interview uh, as Extinction Rebellion with Paul Mason and Anne Pettifor and Molly Scott Cato, and Molly had actually used that analogy yes. of an aeroplane. She said that the thing with changing the economy, it's like an aeroplane mid-flight, you want to turn it into a helicopter. It's probably, you know, not the most environmental, and she is a professor of green economics on a Molly, but <laughs> the point was the point was made, you know. It's a good metaphor. Um, and... Um, this, you know, coronavirus has gentled us into stillness, into some stillness. I mean, of course, you know, uh, Amazon price, uh, Amazon share price has rocketed as a, as has Zoom and others. You know, I mean, it's not it's not finished, yeah. but it, it 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 is a moment of of quietening where we didn't get a choice really. And and again, yeah. you know, I, I think both of us have feeling super cautious to not want to use words like opportunity in the face of people dying it does feel like one of the most gentle ways that nature could have intervened with us because a virus does Mm. come and go um uh, whereas antibiotic resistance is a tipping point it's a wall you know when let's say when we hit that really in terms of roadmaps you know, one so one of the things Paul Mason said there was, look, this is not like the financial crisis when the roof fell in. This is like the foundations being pulled out because so many yeah. uh, people are not able to work at the minute, and it's a, it, I, I can't imagine it's anything other than a deep depression that we've we've gone into, and so there 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 has to be there will be I don't know if it has to be but there will attempt to be a pathway out of this both from the old story Mm. and from the new story roadmaps abound I mean I think there were Dutch economists that gave a kind of six point or something like that Jason yes yeah Jason Hickel uh, tweeted about that um there's project drawdown that's got loads of good signposts in it new economics foundation talked about the great transition in the past you've got the work of the rapid transition alliance there's there's there's, we're not lacking ideas we're not lacking ideas and it has to happen on many many levels we have to tackle the corruption within this economic system i mean that's the, the the most bit for me i used to be the chair of the governing body the tax justice network for a while which is a great honor and they're an incredible movement actually but uh an, an, an organization mm-hmm. but you know i think i think people know about tax dodging but the the extent to which that's organized from the uk and our crown dependencies right. we are yeah. the number one organizers of that corrupt economy i mean it's uh that has to go. Yeah, because blocking those holes. If we even taxed Amazon as it could legally be taxed, 
we could furlough everybody for the rest of their lives. You know, it's, yeah, all right, I could, let's not, I could get quite touchy about that. <laughs> There's also, I've, I've been invited to um, take part in something called Humanity Rising, which has arisen uh, in the yeah. last month yeah. and has huge reach. And I think there are a lot of people, one of the things I'm afraid of is that there are huge numbers of disparate people all trying to reinvent this wheel. And actually what we need to do is bring everybody together to reinvent the wheel, because however much we like not to think so. I read something by Bernard Jenkin, who is not the most right wing of the Tory party anymore. He was once, um, of how he thinks we need to restructure the economy to move forward. And it was quite scary in terms of its libertarian free market principles. And it feels as if we know that Hayek and the others at the Montpellier Society did sit down and work out how their ideal structure would move forward. And they've spent quite a lot of time honing that concept. And there is a counterweight on the right that knows what it wants and how it thinks yeah, it's going yeah. to get it. And that we on the environmentally aware other wing, I hate left and sure, right, I don't really sure. want to use them, um, but whatever we call it, have quite a lot of underlying principles and not a lot of unified ideas yet. And it may be that we resist unified ideas because they lead to hierarchical structures, but that it would be good to have some sense of a unified roadmap to move forward in the next six months. I mean, I don't actually think that's the most important thing, although I would totally welcome it. I mean, and you're right about the the extreme libertarian right. Naomi Klein talks about the shock doctrine and and, and it's always seen as an opportunity. Yeah. Milton Friedman talked about that. Milton Friedman also said that the great virtue, I'm quoting him here, of a market capitalist society mm. is that by preventing a concentration of power, it prevents people yes. from doing the kind of harm <laughs> which really concentrated power can do. Baked within the father you know, and, and I could quote that to you, I won't, but uh, mothers of neoliberalism, uh, Ayn Rand was really the mother, I guess, but um, mm. it, it is this idea that w- they're trying to keep people safe from the harm of of of, of a state gone wrong, like, uh, you know, Nazi Germany being the obvious case in point, but not just. Mm. I think the reason why I say it's not about the what we do instead, uh, as much as it's important to ha- hold a vision, those ideas are there and you'll have political processes for bringing them together and, and so on. The issue is political power and it remains political power, in my opinion. And so I think we mustn't at this time let go of our rebellious spirit. If we want a different economy, we need to, in my opinion, again, rebel on behalf of that new economy, and which is what the work I'm doing at the minute is called some, it's called money rebellion. Okay. And and what I'm talking about is making sure that the space exists for the new ideas to be inevitable, to come forwards, to find their way. Because often we want to, you know, bring them all together in a room, package them up, and here's the perfect blueprint. Mm. And all we do is like lots of people argue and so on, da 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 da. Create the space, and it's an ongoing process, isn't it? Now, how do you create the space? Okay. The idea with money rebellion is to say we are all in some ways in service to this economy that we know, and Daniel Schmattenberger talks about it beautifully with Charles Eisenstein, in service to this destructive, it's destroying life on earth, whether it's through paying, uh, you know, debt is a key part. And I think 
we're we're trying to avoid getting into our nerdy sides here, Amanda. I can feel it. You know, we'd no, love go for it. I we'd think, love a nerd off here, it's... aren't we? Talking about debt and, and yes. then how it fuels GDP and so on. Anyway, there's all of that. So debt rent is you know based on uh, asset price inflation when housing has been put to market economics. And I'm not mm. criticising anybody who rents rooms out. I'm do it myself I have done it myself you know we're all in this system paying utility bills where there's profit extraction um so on there's lots of ways in which we are part of this system we all know it right um as much as we might want to participate in a gift economy and do where we can yeah we still have to eat (laughs) paying tax returns when the tax so on now so the thing is how might we say well I have these resources and I'm not willing to put them into this economic system it is I'm going to put them over here so you're visioning the new economy. You're saying, I'm going to, instead of giving um, the council my tax, I'm going to pay in labour in service in my community in this way. Or instead of paying my some aspects of my tax bill, I'm going to go and help nature restore itself. Instead of paying my debt off to this mortgage company, I'm going to give money to the front lines of resistance that are resisting that same bank that's creating a you know so it's about being the change now you know there's a lot of detail in here because people go ah you know taxes pay for the nhs well you know this is not going to have any Mm. impact compared to 123 billion of tax dodging that happens annually in the uk right i mean we're not this is tax disobedience to make a point or it can be debt Mm. disobedience um to make a point it's the the system's already bringing itself down this is not about us trying to bring down a system this is about us saying we are not in service to the system we're in service to a new economy and i think a a money rebellion if we could pull it off is the way to create the space for the new ways now people are obviously really frightened of things like that what's it going to do to my credit Mm. rating Mm. this comes back to our togetherness right so some people would be willing to do what you might call a vanguard action just do it because they believe in it and fuck it i'm not paying (laughs) you know there are people around of that spirit but another way we can do this is what you'd call a conditional commitment which would go yeah i'm a barclays bank mortgage holder i won't pay if a thousand people join me or you know i won't pay rent to my uh, student accommodation if 500 people join me i won't pay taxes or a portion of my taxes if 10,000 people join and we're talking about you know nhs not hs2 or something like that so we can yes. so what we'll be doing when we launch this thing which i hope will be soon it's a real work in progress is is asking people just to say yes i'm interested and then if they're willing to have a phone call with us where we can ask where their boundaries are, what they're willing to do. And that's how we could get this thing moving, I think. Gosh, I'm I'm envisioning the work and the logistical input to that, which is huge. But yes, that's so interesting because I think a lot of people who would be prepared to sit in the road and face arrest. In we live in a country where the police are brutal, but they're not actually tear gassing us or clubbing us mm-hmm. with batons most mm-hmm. of the time. And yet the fear of, oh my goodness, my credit rating, what happens, my, my credit card might not work anymore, is, feels more existential, really. And that's the, this, this is the, this is the piece. This is the power oh, well, of the exactly. system. Exactly. And I, I, you know, another piece of around the rebellion for me was the initiation that comes from saying no, you know, and what you're, of course it's right. about what you're saying yes to, but it's the way in which you, I think, 
go through initiatory process of unhooking from the system through that peaceful mischief is I'm sitting in the road. I'm not having this anymore. You know, there is a financial version of that. And it is, you know, if we say we want this new economy, then we have to really be for it and be willing to take some risk. And, you know, obviously everybody's got their own circumstances. We've got um, a debt expert advising us about how the credit rating system works. And there are things you can do if your credit rating falls to get it back up again. So, you know, we can, we can right. bring we can bring playfulness to this and some support yeah. but you know it does need some of us to say i've had enough i'm willing to take the yeah. hit you know yeah. yeah interesting and to have the very clear media impact because it has to be nhs not hs2 or the mail will yeah it's very interesting my head is because my activist head is going god yes and and the bit that likes the four walls that are here going, oh my God, they'll impound my house and, and then I'll have nowhere to live. And, 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 and suddenly it feels very scary. I, I want to go away and really think about that because you're absolutely right. We have to be the change that the world needs. So pray for Crow here, Amanda, because, oh, and Fox, you know, because there's mischief yeah. to be had. I the mean, playfulness. like, for example, with the mortgages, you know, we're not paying, we're not paying. Oh, actually we will pay again then you know i mean there's all sorts of of things that can be done here that minimize risk and maximize impact um yeah yeah and at a time when when the economy is is flatlining anyway when they're actually probably going to give mortgage holidays and then there's a really interesting dialogue of okay you chose not to take the mortgages and then we chose not to pay them. And what is the difference between these two? Yeah. Well, the, you know, it was the whole thing is that there is no magic money tree, and now we found the magic money forest, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And and anyone who studied economics for more than thirty seconds knew that that was the case, because this is my absolute baseline of the thing that drives my blood into steam <laughs> is that Thatcher managed to get everybody to think that national economies were like household economies, when the staring difference is. The government is allowed to make money and does all the time. And if you make your own money, they will lock you up for longer than if you mm. killed people. M- Mrs. Thatcher said, economics are the method. The object is to change the heart and soul. Yeah, and didn't she succeed? <laughs> Goodness. And now we need to and change And this is back. why, yeah, we have to, you know, we feel very tied in. I mean, this that's the purpose of yeah. neoliberalism. I do have a talk online about neoliberalism if you put my name and I will street find school it. economics yep. in. But, it, you know, that, that that is one of the purposes is to... But, it's, but then it's shared as if it's a natural process. And that's what infuriates me is it's not... Nat, it's, this mm. is not... Nature doesn't yeah. do this. Um, no, nature exactly. allows competition and so on but it comp every you know yeah all of that yeah, yeah and uh, yes we could we could geek out couldn't we, we could talk about <laughs> negative interest rates and what happens yeah. if when when money naturally devalues which is much more natural and this is i think that's another key thing that also we are going to have to stop but i would be very interested in the media narrative the people who create the media narratives in our nation went to the same schools, the same universities, often the same Tory club meetings as the people who hold the power. And they they seem to believe that economics is a law of nature, that the markets are somehow an external thing over which no human being has control, mm. when evidentially that is not true. At the beginning of the coronavirus, the markets collapsed 30% because the algorithms were doing exactly what they were programmed to do. And within a week, the guys whose bonuses depend on the market still going up had 
very obviously reprogrammed the algorithms because it didn't do that anymore. And so the market is is utterly human and utterly controllable and could be eradicated overnight if we chose to. In the same way that economics, the laws of economics are human laws, they are not like gravity. Mm. So in the conversations about the money rebellion, how are we going to get people like Robert Peston, who, who genuinely seems to believe the old narrative? How can we reach them? I, I mean, I don't know Robert uh, Peston's personal economics. I, I've got a book on the shelf. I must read it, actually. Um, but I, 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 I think it's surely self-evident now that after 30 years of knowledge about the ecological crisis with a 60% increase in carbon dioxide that the markets just aren't tending to this i mean i, I i'm not pers- I'm, it, <laughs> I, I'm not personally like against markets as a concept you know we have the uk's best farmers market apparently in stroud it's wonderful like uh, the idea that the, the, the idea that markets have a place it's people talk about free market fundamentalism there's a brilliant podcast by the way Mandy, if you've not come across it yet called the tax cast from the tax justice network and mm. the last mm. one was talking about the financialization of the economy and and one of the members of that Tax Justice Network. Nick Shackson's written this fantastic book called The Finance Curse as well. So all, you know, nerds uh, unite here. Mm. But one of the points... I'm looking at yeah, as One of the speak. things that Naomi Fowler talks about in the tax cast this time with John Christensen is... And then it moves on to talk about universal basic services. It's a really juicy one. I mean, they're all good. Um, but, but basically, uh, the FTSE 100 companies and, of course, others have been gorging on their own profits. They've ne- they're not... You know, if, mm. if this if this is household economics, every last penny that they've got, they've spent. It would be like really terrible. Mm. Uh, there's no savings, um, and and so immediately you've got capitalism begging for socialism at the minute. And this is this is the whole point. Yes. You know, it's exposed itself. It's like okay, you can't like it's not just one company, is it? It's all so many companies asking for a bailout. You're Richard Branson offering his. Tropical island, as as some kind of collateral, and you go, Richard. You can't eat tropical islands. It's not got that much value anymore. I'm yeah, sorry. Um, I mean, Vir- yeah, Vir- Vir- Virgin is. I'm mean, behave yourself, Manda. Uh, Virgin is um, is so cold because it's headquartered in the British Virgin Islands for tax purposes. It's my understanding, anyway. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, there's just there's a, just a, like a massive amount of piss taking. This is the piece that I don't think people know about tax dodging, is that when companies hide their money in, in secrecy jurisdictions, as they're more accurately called, or tax havens, they do something with the money. What do they do? They buy up government government bonds quite often because mm. they're, um, mm. they're, they're kind of seen as, as, as safe bets um, to make money from, as well as doing things like hedge funds, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, vulture capitalist piece. So there's so much rapacity, but what this actually means is that we're not only not getting the interest that we should, and I think it's over 200 billion just from Apple alone, you know, like incredible amounts of money that are believed to be held offshore, or I can't remember if that would be their tax bill. <laughs> they, we pay them interest on the tax they didn't pay us. Can you imagine? Oh, God. I mean, that we let that happen. Yes, so then is, when people yeah. are going, oh, yes. you know, I've got to pay my mortgage. What if people didn't pay their debts? Is really, if you actually know <laughs> just how deeply okay. corrupted this system is, yes. like, you know, that, that comment right. only the little people pay taxes is just, 
um, eye-watering. The, 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 and it's because it's hidden be- behind obfuscating language, collateralised debt obligations that are hidden offshore in exotic vehicles yeah. or talking about yeah. monopolies and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just, it, it sounds really difficult. But, you know, there are two things about economics. One is uh, some people are taking the fucking piss, <laughs> you know. Number one, like, <laughs> like, and it's and it's and it's po- folks with money, folks. You know, I, it, it, it's on an industrial scale, and it's not, you know, benefits fraud and all the rest of it is is a is is meaningless in the face of that piss taking. The second thing is there are alternatives, you know, and you don't right. need to know anything else yeah. about economics. Those two things, and like, right, <laughs> that's it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and and then we can swing the narrative away from, I it's all the immigrants taking your jobs. That's the reason that you've actually your in, real income has dropped in the last thirty years, which is is just on every level completely abhorrent. And if we could move the narrative in a way that just becomes unassailable, then then we could change the system. That feels very exciting. It feels like a very, very wonderful place to end. Have you got anything that you wanted to say that we haven't covered? Um, gosh, I, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. Just other than, I, I think back to that piece about our togetherness and our willing to step forwards in these times and what that might look like mm. to be all making our prayers for... Yeah. The more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, as Charles Eisenstein mm. calls it. Yes. And um, to be offering ourselves in service to that, yeah. you know, what what does that mean for each of us? I mean, I'm obviously pushing the rebellion and we all have our roles and our things that we can do at this time. Um, whenever yeah. there's an opportunity for togetherness, let's take it. That's so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. That's that's a very good place to stop. Thank you. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Gail for her wisdom, integrity and sheer boundless vision. We will be back next week with somebody else. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for designing the website and for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods. And thanks to you for listening. We wouldn't be here without you. If you want to visit the website, we're at accidentalgods.life on the web. That's where we have the show notes, the blog, and the Accidental Gods membership programme, which is a structured training designed to bring us all to the point where we can take our place in the web of life with integrity, authenticity and grounding. So if you know of anyone who would like to be active in bringing about the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, do send them this link. That's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.